Hello, good evening. This is Bizik on Stocks, and I am your host, Ian Bizik. Thank you for joining me tonight. Uh, we'll be discussing Russia, Ukraine, and the explosion in commodity prices this evening. Uh, before we get started, I'd just like to remind you, as always, this is for education and entertainment purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. And with that out of the way, uh, good evening. It's definitely been a crazy couple of weeks in the market since we've last spoke. Um, yeah, I was uh, trying to be on vacation last week. My mom came in from, from the U.S. to visit her to my family and the grandkids here in Columbia, and uh, what a messy week that was to try to be on vacation using a rented little cabin out in the mountains with barely barely a working internet connection, and then uh, trying to watch the screen to see what was going on with the, the outbreak of war from this little cabin out in the woods. It's like, this was the wrong week to go on vacation. But anyway, stuff always happens, so I'm back at the office now trying to get caught up and see see how the world has changed. Um, and probably in case you're curious, you might have guessed from my last name that I am Polish, Bizik. Uh My grandparents from my dad's side escaped between World War One and World War Two. They came to the U.S. not speaking a word of English. Uh, made a life for themselves in the shoe industry uh, with manual labor in New York uh, back in the 1930s and 40s. And so, uh, fortunately, I don't uh, no family in Ukraine that I'm aware of, but uh, my thoughts and prayers go out to them. Uh, it's terrible, obviously, what's going on. I'm sure uh, the civilians on both sides are experiencing a terrible fate right now due to the, the actions of a few leaders. Um, but yeah, so there's that. Uh, as far as how the Russia and, and Ukraine conflict is going, I'd say that that's above my pay grade. I see a lot of people on, on Twitter opining about how it's going to turn out. Uh, but that's not really where I concern myself. I view it from an investing angle, not a, a geopolitical angle, and you can find strategists who know far more about that than me, so I won't spend too much time there. I would just say that that I'd be cautious. It seems a lot of market participants are convinced that that uh, things won't get worse, like just that the war will kind of drag on for a little while, and then there'll be peace, and I'd, I'd agree that that's the most likely outcome. Uh, but I'd be wary of, of tail events. Obviously, most people didn't think that the invasion was going to happen in the first place. Uh, and so, and that was obviously a huge surprise to markets. And so I'd just say be careful and be prepared for the unexpected. I mean, probably, I don't know, even if it's only a 10 or 20% chance that something bad happens, make sure that your portfolio is in a place where you're not going to run into margin calls or uh, end up in some sort of unfortunate situation if the bad thing does happen. Because like the vast majority of the time, when you have these weird tail events, uh, we'll get a benign outcome or a, a good outcome. But you just want to always be prepared to make sure that you're not risking too much in the case of an unfortunate outcome. I'd say the biggest risk, uh, specifically from this, we've seen some talk that the U.S. might uh, put some sort of sanctions on China uh, depending on how, if China comes to the defense of Russia. And I think that would be just a nightmare event for the markets, uh, the world. In terms of uh, trading with, there's not that much trade with Russia aside from commodities, as we'll discuss tonight. But obviously, China is a whole different ballgame. And if things, uh, if relations degrade between the US and China, you'd be looking at the market just going straight down for quite a while. So that would be that's the the nightmare scenario to be concerned about in my view at the moment 
Uh, as far as bargains out of Russia, uh, very hard to buy Russia directly. Obviously, everything's halted. Uh, we don't know when that might change. Uh, Russia has, uh, it appears that they're trying to nationalize all of their assets anyway. So uh, it's not clear that the pieces of paper that were traded in New York and London actually owned any assets at the moment. So um, even if those ETFs and ADRs are reopened, I'm not sure what value they might have. They might have a lot of value. They might have no value. We've seen other markets kind of get frozen, like Venezuela, uh, where the assets were nationalized there in 2002. And 10, 15, 20 years later, there were still people suing in, in, the, uh, for, in the UN's court to try to recover assets, like for gold mines and stuff that was uh, uh, expropriated. And so I don't know if Russia goes down a Venezuela-like path, but I'd say as a foreign investor, that's probably not the not the best use of your capital. Um, in terms of other alternatives, I'd say Poland looks interesting. I think it's dropped 20 or 25 percent since uh, this conflict started. Obviously, Poland is protected by NATO, so the full firepower and defense of the U.S., Germany, the U.K., and so on. So I'd view it as very unlikely that uh, Putin would invade there. Not zero percent, but very, very unlikely. Um, Polish banks in particular have gotten whacked. So if you like banks, I think those are worth taking a look. I went through all of their, all of the listed stocks in their top 20 index. Unfortunately, most of them are in heavy industry or banks. Uh, there's not a lot of consumer plays. There's a couple of apparel companies and a discount grocery store. Um, so maybe those are interesting to some people. Uh, but there's not a lot of like healthcare, or light industry, or software, that sort of stuff that, that most people would be excited about. Um, I did find a Polish sausage company, which I, which I found uh, exciting because, uh, you know, I like the meat companies and obviously Polish sausage is, is very... Uh, it's a product that that country is well known for, but unfortunately, it's only a market cap of like $100 million, so probably not uh, suitable for most people. Uh, one other thing that I was looking at, this was actually on my radar before the war kicked off, was a company called Georgia Capital, which is listed in London, but is uh, based in the Republic of Georgia, which borders Russia. It's a diversified conglomerate. It owns a bank. It owns a water utility. It owns healthcare facilities. Uh, it's just kind of trying to be the holding company for all sectors of the Georgian economy. Uh, I heard about it first on a podcast, and the price went up a lot after it was pitched on the podcast. And so I just put it on a watch list, but said, eh, probably too expensive. Uh, but I think it's come down about 30% since the Russia and Ukraine situation started. So it's now back down near its lows. Uh, I think it's a very interesting business model, and it seems the management has done a good job in terms of capital allocation over the years, from what I can tell. I don't own any yet, and it was just kind of on my watch list until this started, but I will be doing more work on it. And if you want to kind of front run me, <laughs> that's something that I've been looking at. Um, let's see. Yeah, so longer-term ramifications, like I said, I don't really have any view on the short-term like military strategy or what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis in Russia or Ukraine. Uh, but I would highlight, uh, you might have heard me pitch bonds about a month ago. I said that I felt bonds were too cheap and relatively attractive, and obviously that's worked out uh, very well recently. The, the value of bonds has increased significantly since the war started, as people have wanted kind of a safe haven trade. And so, yeah, I've been kind of showing the 
why bonds were superior trade to tech stocks. And obviously, as we've seen, kind of ARC and a lot of the FANG stocks continued making new lows, at least until today. And you might say, well, they're kind of the same trade because they're both betting that the Fed isn't going to raise interest rates as much as as people were fearing. However, bonds give you kind of the safe haven protection when when things go bad, like in this case when there's literally a war. And so I think that's kind of interesting from a portfolio construction standpoint because people just kind of lock onto the first trade like, oh, the Fed's not going to raise rates eight times, which I agree they probably won't. So it's by tech stocks. But instead, you could get the same upside in terms of when the Fed has to hike rates less than expected. You could, uh, Bonds will give you that same upside, but you take less downside risk. Like in a calamity like we're getting now with Russia and Ukraine, potentially, the bonds went up and the tech stocks went down. So I think that's just kind of an interesting example of, of an idea that I pitched recently where we saw that play out in practice. Uh, longer term ramifications from the current crisis, I think we should be watching for, and this is getting into the commodity theme of the show tonight. Um, the thing that's really on my mind is social instability, seeing all the prices of, of grain and gas in particular, like wheat was up, I think, 40% last week. Corn was up a whole bunch. Uh, and that stuff matters to everyone. Uh, I mean, in the U.S., but also in emerging markets, you look all the all the political uprisings and riots in, in Africa and the Middle East about a decade ago when commodity prices went crazy. That caused governments to fall in many places. Uh, turning back to the 90s, when the price of corn doubled in Mexico, the government collapsed there. So much so that the U.S. had to bail out the banks because I think Citibank would have been insolvent because it had lent too much to Mexico. And then you had the the food riots in Mexico that, that kind of collapsed their economy. Um, yeah, there's so much of the world that lives on a very little amount of money. Like here where I live in Colombia, the minimum wage is like $250 a month. And even a lot of people work uh, informally in the black market for less than that. And so if you raise the price of food, like if people are already spending, uh, let's call it $100 of their $250 monthly wage on food, and then the price of food doubles, now they're spending $200 of their $250 minimum wage. It's like, where are they going to live? How are they going to buy medicine? Like, the, it's this is a the food inflation we're seeing now is so abrupt, uh, 50% on wheat, 30 40% on meat. This is the sort of stuff that causes people's lives to be ruined. And I don't know what the government can do about it. I mean, in the short term, it's just such a crushing problem. There's a shortage of labor. There's not enough energy. It's a really big mess. It concerns me just in terms of uh, as an investor, but also just as a, as a person. Just I don't know how the world's going to do with it, deal with this. We haven't seen anything like this since the 70s. And even in the U.S., uh, it's easy to say in the U.S., like everyone has enough money for food at least. Uh, but I'd say that, that there was a huge period of political instability in the U.S. as well when there's the inflation. Think back to the politics, like you had Nixon who got kicked out of power uh, for his uh, indiscretions and the Ford presidency was ineffective. Carter was infamously inf- ineffective and had the Iranian hostages, uh, lost re- his re-election badly. You get Reagan coming in with a huge swing to the right. And so if you were an investor in that climate, like the stock market was terrible in the 70s. It didn't go up at all. And then uh, you had inflation over 10% every year. So people lost like 40, 50% of their money in real terms in the 70s. Uh, not only because of the inflation and energy crisis and all, but because of the the ineffective and uh, vacillating leadership, both in the U.S. and overseas. And I fear that we'll see something like that now. Uh, just, yeah, this... 
particularly, I mean, inflation was already a concern, but now if they can't get food prices under control and they can't get gas under control, I think you're going to see some some wacky stuff happen in politics, both in the U.S. and overseas. Um, yeah, so let's see. That was that was a little bit negative, but that, that's, I'm, I'm generally quite optimistic. But it's just how I see things now. Uh, and let's get into commodities, though. What are, what are we to do about these higher prices? Uh, a lot of people would look at this and say, "I want to buy commodities because they're going up." And I'm, that's understandable in a degree, but. Uh, and if you if you follow the markets for a long time and you understand the intricacies of a particular commodity, uh, maybe go for it if you know what you're doing. But in general, if you haven't traded a commodity before, this is not the time to start. I would be very careful about like looking at the headlines and saying, I'm going to start buying wheat or I'm going to start buying corn. Or, I'm going to start buying natural gas. Like If you've never traded this stuff before, there are experts on the other side of the poker table that know so much more than you or I do about those particular markets. And I would be very careful buying into a rush like this. And like you saw today, oil went down, what, 15% in an hour after they announced that, that maybe Iran is going to drill, or not drill more, uh, produce more, rather. Uh, and so that's just the sort of move that you get when you've had so much hype build up around oil for the past six months. You've got a ton of people on leverage, on margin, buying oil. The price has gone from 100 to 130 with the Russia war kicking up. Then suddenly you get a bad headline for oil and it's down 15% an hour. And that's how people that don't know what they're doing get killed because they get excited towards the end of a move. People start pitching it on TV or whatever, and then you get the washout. I think wheat dropped like 15% yesterday or maybe it was Friday. Anyway, there was a, there was a big drop there as well. Like after everyone had gotten in, then the professionals came in and kind of sold to all the new people that had bought into the market. So, I'd be very careful buying commodities directly uh, in terms of buying mining companies or or agriculture companies. That's a little bit better, but still, they tend to be historically very poor businesses. Like gold miners, for example, have produced no total returns since like the early 2000s, if I recall correctly. And so they're just tend to have bad management teams, high cost of capital. Um, it's just it's a dangerous place for long term investments. So. Once again, if you're going to buy something like gold miners or copper miners or whatever, be very careful what you're doing. Uh, a country like Chile, which I like, for example, uh, we see now they they have a new government. The government's trying to pass laws that will potentially take a far larger portion of the copper and lithium revenues there for the government rather than for the private mining companies. And so Chilean stocks have been selling off. Uh, but as you know, that I've been recommending there the Chilean beer company and the Chilean uh, soft drink company, and those are, would obviously not be affected by the by the higher mining tax. Uh, which gets to kind of my point that if you want to bet on higher, like something doing well with commodities, I would say bet on the country or bet on a theme, but don't don't actually like buy the, the actual metal or whatever. Uh, Something like, like Chile will be a lot more prosperous regardless of whether the copper revenue goes to the government or to a Canadian or U.S. mining company that owns the mine. Uh, but regardless, workers there are going to get paid. The government's going to have more money to fund social programs. Like overall consumption will be up. So if you own a Chilean retailer or a Chilean whatever healthcare company, Chilean uh, beverage company, you're going to make more money. But if you're a mining company, your asset might get nationalized. So I'd be, I'd be very much in favor of owning the companies that are insulated from, 
from the political risk, the headline risk, the nationalization risk. That's why I like stuff like airports. Uh, it's one of my favorite ways to play emerging markets because generally governments don't want to mess up the, the flow of other tourists. Uh, but yeah, just be very careful if if you've not played commodity stocks and commodity futures before. Now is not the time to learn. I'd wait until the market settles down um, and enter at a lower volatility point. Because when volatility is highest, that's when it's the most expensive if you make mistakes. All right. So what do I like in terms of how to benefit from higher commodity prices? I like industrial equipment. Uh, obviously, all of this new mining and oil drilling and uh, farming that we're going to be doing. You need the equipment, parts, uh, stuff like deer, stuff like caterpillar. Uh, I'm sure you can think of a bunch more. I don't have very much exposure in these places yet, but it's on my list of things that I need to get more exposure to. Uh, and if you own that stuff, good for you. And I would say keep holding it. Um, I like emerging markets that produce commodities. I think the I haven't looked today, but when I looked last week, the three top markets in the world year to date were Colombia, Argentina, and Brazil, which should make a lot of sense because Colombia is an oil exporter, and Argentina and Brazil export tons of grains and meat, and Brazil exports uh, oil and metals as well. And so, obviously, if you're one of those economies, you're going to be doing much better. I think the Colombian peso has appreciated like 10% this year against the dollar already, like 20% against the euro. Like, there's a lot of money coming into into my country, a lot of money coming into Peru, a lot of money coming into to Brazil, and uh, the, these economies have been have been dormant for so long that any sort of money showing up is going to cause a big reaction in terms of of prices moving up. So I, I think uh, Latin America is in a sweet spot, uh, which also brings up Mexico. I think Mexico is going to be a big winner out of this, um, and that might seem counterintuitive at first because Mexico doesn't really export much in the way of commodities. However, I think you're going to see shortening supply chains. That's one of my big themes. We've kind of hit peak globalization. Uh, obviously, countries like uh, Russia and Ukraine are dropping out of the world economy entirely. Other countries like China are much riskier to do business with than they used to be. And so if you're a U.S., let's say you're a U.S. car company, uh, do you want to get parts from China or do you want to get it from Tijuana on the border? Obviously, you're going to get as much from, from Mexico as you can. The factories in Tijuana, for example, are running 24-7, seven days a week, as much uh, production as they can. Because if you're, yeah, if you're a car company, an auto, uh, aviation company, healthcare company, and you already have the plant in Tijuana, why are you going to import anything from Asia at this time? You want your production as close to home as possible, less political risk, less logistical costs, less fuel to get your stuff over the Pacific. I think Mexico is very well positioned here. Um, for another theme, turning towards the haves and have-nots, this sort of crazy inflationary environment is how you get a, a divide between the uh, the wealthy and the, the lower class. I think uh, luxury brands will do very well here. You, you want to sell to the people that still can spend with no limit on their... Um, uh, that have basically unlimited spending power. Uh, you may have noticed I started buying LVMH again yesterday. I think it's come down 30% over the past few weeks. I think that's very interesting here because uh, that sort of business tends to do well. Uh, when the economy goes haywire, the rich still have money. They'll keep spending. Uh, so, yeah, stuff like LVMH, uh, I think the cosmetics names like Estee Lauder, L'Oreal, Shishido have come down a lot. That's the place I'd look. And then on the flip side of that, the discount names also do well. You want to essentially bet against the middle class and bet on 
on the lower class stuff like dollar stores, Walmart. Uh, Walmart was, I think, the only Dow stocks that went up during the, the great financial crisis in 2008 because everyone was trading down. Walmart went up, ten, like if you bought it in 2007, you made 10% between then and March 2009, which 10% isn't great, but it beats minus 55% on this and be 500. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, kind of a, uh, what is it, a barbell approach of uh, lower class goods and luxury goods might be interesting. Uh, I like some of the compounder names have sold off dramatically, just kind of the high quality names that are always expensive and grow consistently. Uh, monopolies with long-term pricing power, uh, something like an Echolab here or Visa. Uh, if you're uh, one of my subscribers, you saw my Echolab right up recently. They basically don't have any competition. Uh, the world's largest sanitation company by a mile, and their largest competitor is, is very poorly run. So a uh, huge market. It's uh, big in terms of ESG. Uh, in terms of saving saving water, saving electricity, and so on. Uh, stock's down, I think, 35% now. And people are looking at short-term margin pressures because they sell a lot of chemicals and whatnot. But, uh, though, I mean, when you have as little competition as I do, they can raise prices dramatically. So it will get worked through. I think uh, the dip that we're seeing now is completely unjustified because uh, when you're a monopoly, you raise prices, so it'll be fine. Uh, something like Visa as well, I think, is very interesting here. It's come back under 200 again. Uh, I think they lose, what, 4 or 5% of their business from Russia going away, but that's fine. They'll live uh, a lot of multinationals. I mean, it seems like just about everyone's pulling out of Russia, so I don't think that's unique to Visa, even though Visa got more negative headlines from their decision to leave than other companies. Uh, but the long-term business isn't going anywhere. Sure, they may lose some cross-border traffic, but Visa's huge, diversified. Uh, I think the market's overreacting right now. Uh, yeah, and then finally, I also include companies that reduce commodities, uh, excuse me, reduce commodity usage. So anyone that can help uh, people save gas, help people save water, uh, help people use their food inputs more efficiently, uh, anything like that, anything where the value proposition is in terms of reducing spend on commodities is going to be a winner. So once again, I like something like Ecolab, where uh, one of their big things is when, if you're a company that hasn't been using advanced uh, water treatment in your plants, for example, like Hershey uh, switched to Ecolab a few years ago for the, treating their plants and they saved 30% of their water that they were able to recycle on site rather than having to buy locally. And so as the price of, of buying commodities, buying and getting things like water treatment done goes up, you're going to be able to spend more on companies like Ecolab and also boost your ESG score at the same time because you say, oh, we're using our retreated water rather than using virgin water from the environment. Um, something like uh, the Rotoplast uh, ticker Agua that I recommended in Mexico is also uh, it's doing better. It will be doing better and better as as gas prices go up, because one of its big features is that it's installing piping and uh, water systems in parts of Mexico. They currently use trucks to bring in their water, which is terribly inefficient, both in terms of the environmental damage of having to truck in heavy water um, into the drought-stricken areas from the from the sea. Uh, but also, as gas goes up, like so you're paying four or five, six dollars a gallon to, for gas to run trucks, it becomes more and more cost-efficient to say, "Yeah, let's build." pipes and a treatment center on site instead. So I think uh, Rodoplast, Ticaragua in Mexico is going to get a huge boost from, from what we're seeing now.
Um, yeah, so in about five or ten minutes, I'll open the line up for questions. But I'll just go through a few questions that people wrote in during the week uh, first. And then if anyone wants to queue up for the question line, I will be doing that in a few minutes. Um, yeah, so someone asked a good question. What will be the impact on my airport stocks from higher oil prices? Uh, it's a fair question. I think it will be bad, uh, clearly. Uh, depending on the airline and its cost structure, generally uh, jet fuel makes up like 15 to 25% of expenses for your average airline. Um, so if jet fuel doubles, which probably has or will be soon uh, with the move we've seen in oil over the past six months, that's going to cause airlines to have to raise prices probably about 20%. So I don't know if a transcontinental flight was $800 before, call it maybe $1,000 uh, thanks to what oil's done. So, I mean, that won't destroy the travel industry, but it was certainly a big drag. Um, as far as how it impacts the the airport specifically in Mexico, it shouldn't be as bad as for some of the others. Um, uh, in general, they rely on either domestic travel or flights from the U.S. or Canada, which are relatively shorter than, than going from Europe or Asia. So that's good in terms of jet fuels, somewhat less of a concern. Also for Centro Norte in particular, it's an industrial airport. Like uh, almost all their traffic is related to manufacturing in northern Mexico. So I, I don't see that going away, even with higher fuel prices. Like your automotive companies and healthcare companies and so on that rely on those plants in Mexico are going to keep buying uh, tickets regardless. Like business travel uh, should be more secure from higher commodity prices. Uh, I think the most affected of the airports I cover is uh, Sureste, which is the Cancun airport. Uh, probably that's uh, Cancun. That sort of total leisure travel that has no essential purpose probably goes away fastest if airline tickets are expensive indefinitely. Um, let's see. The impact of food inflation on our portfolio companies. Uh, I'd be most concerned about restaurants. You look at a restaurant, like the average American restaurant earns about a 15% gross margin, meaning that if you are in, if you have a hundred dollar bill, that they're only making fifteen cents of profit after paying for the food, their waiters, their just their overhead to run the restaurant. That's not counting the expenses in terms of everything at the corporate level, interest, paying the executives, and so on. They only keep fifteen cents of just the bill that you pay. Like when you pay a hundred dollars, they only get fifteen bucks of that. And so you double their price of food. Restaurants either have to raise prices dramatically or they don't make any money. I'd be very concerned owning restaurants here. Uh, something like packaged foods, you get a 30 to 40% profit margin. So twice what you get on restaurants. Uh, so that's pretty good. There's more room for, for taking a little bit of a hit from inflation and still making money. Uh, the one that surprised me, people asked about alcohol stocks. Here, I don't see much of a problem at all. Uh, generally, alcohol stocks make at least a 50% gross margin, meaning that uh, if they sell you $10 of beer, spirits, or whatever, they're keeping at least five. This goes up to 80%. Brown Foreman earns an 80% margin, meaning they sell you $100 of whiskey, and it's $80 of profit to them. And yes, I know their financial statement says it's only 60-something, but they include distribution costs in their gross margin, which other people don't. And so backing that out, they earn an 80% uh, gross margin, so... Uh, if you doubled all of their costs, not just their wheat, but all of their costs, their glass, bottles, um, I don't know, everything that goes into the product, plus their labor costs, like you double all that and they're still making a 60% gross margin. So companies like Brown Foreman, Diageo will not uh, be impacted by this hardly at all. 
but yeah, if you own restaurants or uh, other things that with very low gross margins, that's why I'd be very careful. Uh, let's see. And a question here, a good question here, Ian, I agree with your long-term bullish thesis on oil and gas, but there comes a point where hydrocarbon prices uh, start causing demand destruction. Um, th- worried about that. Wonder what price you think might cause serious demand destruction. Uh, it seems the environment has certainly become riskier for oil and gas since uh, Putin entered Ukraine. Yes, uh, I agree entirely. Uh, as I, I sold a lot of my I sold all of my call options on oil futures on oil itself uh, when the price topped 100 because I think we're getting into the kind of danger zone. Uh, my thesis all along for oil back since it was $60 was that, that we weren't going to get a supply response uh, as the price of oil went up uh, just because governments had made it more difficult to drill. We haven't been able to build new pipelines. Um, companies have been urged to not spend more money on new oil drilling. Like you had the activists come into Exxon and tell them, uh, don't drill anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's embarrassing. For, how does a company like Exxon get taken down by activists like that? Uh, but anyway, so the, the environment was very, very much against new oil drilling. You look at the Baker Hughes rig count, which is all of the oil wells, act, uh, oil wells, oil rigs active in the U.S., and we're still only at 500 now. It bottomed out in 2016 at 450. So when oil was at like $30 in 2016, we went down to 450. It had been 1600 at the height of the, the fracking boom in 2014. And today, with the price of oil at 110 or whatever it is now, we're still only at 500 rigs. Uh, for contrast, we were at 400 rigs in 1995 when the price of oil was $15. So we're barely above where we were back when no one cared about oil, like in its slump in the 90s. And we're still at less than a third of the rig count that we were at in 2014. And so as things stand today, there's still not much of a supply response from the U.S. And it looks pretty laughable what we're seeing from the rest of the world. Like, oh, we're going to bring Venezuela online. Like, good luck with that. They don't have food. They don't have <laughs> people are living in the streets like how are, how are they going to bring oil production back online everything's been rusting and decaying away there for the last 15 years maybe you can get some more from iran uh, that's possible and uh, we'll see how that goes in terms of sanctions saudi arabia maybe has a little excess production but you take five five million plus barrels away from russia and there's just no easy response to that so we're gonna get a short-term squeeze on oil uh but the fact that now oil is above 100 means that everyone is finally has the green light to go drilling again. Uh, the Republicans are trying to pass, they've passed some stuff in the Senate uh, to lift restrictions on, on oil drilling and pipelines in the U.S. Obviously, those won't become law as long as the Democrats control Congress. However, midterms are coming up in 2022, so uh, we'll see. Uh, things could definitely change there. We're seeing pressure in other countries to to make it easier to go drilling for oil again. Um, yeah, and in places like the Permian, we are seeing an uptick in drilling activity. It's been slow. Uh, I think the companies were holding off as long as they could. But at this price, they pretty much have to. And the politicians are going to lose elections if gas is at $5 when people are voting. So I think we are going to see a lot more oil drilling longer term, at, at least at these prices. And that's making me more cautious long term on oil. Short term, the companies are still going to make a ton of money. I love Canadian Natural. I love Suncor. I like Exxon. I think they're going to do very well for the next year or two. But originally my thesis was oil goes up and up and up through like 2025. And maybe it's up through 2023 now. I think the the trajectory for my 
my long-term view has shifted with what's happened. And there could be a ceasefire tomorrow in Ukraine and, uh, and the thesis changes again, but that's where I stand today. And so, yeah, that's my presentation for now. And I will open the line up for questions. And Aaron is up first. Hey, Ian. Uh, I was hoping uh, to go in a little more depth on on oil. I guess my, my main questions are how quickly can supply in the U.S. come back online? And I, you kind of addressed it a little bit uh, at the end of, of your uh, of what you were just saying. But I guess I'd like a little more clarity on how you're treating the, the your options positions in the, uh, the Canadian producers, uh, because, you know, clearly they're up a, a lot and I'm a little bit unsure how, you know, the price of oil impacting, you know, U.S. supply coming online would would perhaps uh, interact with uh, with the Canadian positions. Sure, yeah, great questions. Uh, on the first one, uh, it's important to realize with the U.S. production, the, the kind of think of it as two buckets of production. You have the conventional wells, which were primarily drilled longer ago and have very slow decline curves. Like if a conventional well made 100 barrels of oil last year, it might make 95 this year, let's call it. So pretty steady production. Once you have it in the ground, it will produce a lot of oil for many years. But then the fracking and shale production that we've gotten kind of since 2008, those wells often decay at 40 or 50 percent a year or more. So if you drill a well and it does 100 barrels the first year, it might do 50 the next year and 20 the next year. And then within four or five years, it's producing virtually nothing. And so you have to keep drilling to, to just to keep production flat, essentially. And so if we go back to fracking at 1,500 rigs like we were doing in 2014, we can produce a ton of we, the U.S. can be the world's leading producer uh, by a significant degree. Uh, uh, however, we'll need more uh, in terms of pipelines and more in terms of political will and more access to capital, particularly for the smaller companies to make that happen. At the current rig count, we're at at 500. The U.S. can, uh, I would guess, barely just keep production flat. I don't think you'll see any production growth uh, at where we're at in terms of rig count now. Uh, but the question is, did, will companies feel free to spend again? And will politicians give the green light to do things like modernizing refineries and uh, building bigger pipelines? Stuff that's essential if we want to say we're going to be the world's leading energy producer again. And from my perspective, I still can't tell you how it's going to go. I mean, I think the longer that gas prices are up this high, the more pressure there will be both on companies and on politicians to to move in terms of prioritizing production over climate, but uh, I don't know, it could still go either way. Like I said, if there's a peace fire tomorrow, I think we go back to kind of the status quo as it was before, but the longer we're stuck in this, this limbo that we're in now, the, the more pressure there will be. Uh, I don't think we can fix the oil shortage this year, like I said, but maybe by the end of 2023, we're starting to bring a lot more supply online. And if it's coming from the U.S., it will be a lot more secure. Or if it's coming from Canada, it will be a lot more secure than relying on production from Russia or, or Venezuela or whatnot. Uh, yeah. So let's see. Your second question was, on, yeah, and the call options on the Canadian producers. I still like those. I've held most of them. I sold a little bit uh, uh, a while ago, um, but I haven't sold any since, when was that, January? Uh, I think the... Oil stocks have gone up more slowly than oil itself uh, because oil 
the commodity is more driven by speculators and supply and demand, but people are looking at the oil companies and saying, what's my cash flow this year, next year, five years, 10 years, kind of discounting the cash flow over time. And so I think people are still kind of assuming a long-term oil rate of 70, call it 70 or $75 a barrel when you're pricing the Canadian companies. Because uh, like, if you actually assume oil is worth $100 a barrel, those the valuations on those companies make no sense now. I think Canadian Natural is is worth at least $100 a share in a $100 oil world, and Suncor is worth 60 uh, the last time I modeled it. And so if we think oil stays in triple digits, those stocks have way higher to go. Um, do I think oil stays over 100 forever? No, probably not. Um, but I think it stays up here or somewhere in, up here long enough that we're going to see a lot more buybacks. We're going to see more dividend increases. These companies are swimming in cash. They're still paying down a lot of debt now, but uh, over the next few quarters, they will have paid off so much debt that I think they'll stop paying down debt and we'll get even more aggressive buybacks. Uh, I think there's still a lot of, stuff in place to make the stocks work higher over, I don't know, call it the next six to nine months. Uh, yeah, and so I like taking off the oil calls on the commodity because I think that that's already played out to a significant significant degree, uh, but the, the stocks are still cheap. Um, for a name that people are more familiar with, something like Exxon is still trading below where it traded in 2007 and then where it traded in 2014. And I don't think that makes any sense. The fundamentals for oil are much better now than in either of those cases. Uh, and Exxon has invested a lot in more production, whereas its peers haven't. Exxon has its wonderful field in Guyana, which is one of the uh, newest and lowest cost fields in the world. And so I, th I think it's ridiculous that Exxon is trading below its all-time highs. But people clearly think this is just a short-term blip. The long-term trajectory for oil is still lower, and a lot of funds aren't allowed to own them because of ESG or whatnot. And so I, I think energy equities are still priced as if we're in a $70 oil world. Uh, yeah, whereas we're over 100 now. So Sorry, that was kind of rambly, but I hope that helps. No, that was, I, I was just thinking you could probably take the transcript and turn that into an article. That was actually uh, very well done. I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, anything else on your mind? Uh, the only other thing that just kind of occurred to me is, uh, in terms of restaurants, is, is something like Alcia uh, in Mexico potentially impact? Is that one of the things that you would consider getting rid of because margins would be squeezed based on food? Or is that in a kind of a franchise model, maybe not as, as impactful? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I was, I was actually considering whether I should talk about that when I mentioned that in the my presentation or not. Uh, yes, as you said, they're partially protected because uh, a good number of their stores are sub-franchised. Uh, I, I should back up. For people that aren't familiar, I'll say is the Domino's and Starbucks operator for Mexico, for South America, and for part of Europe. Uh, it also has some smaller chains, some Mexican domestic restaurants, and also Burger King for Latin America. Uh, it's around 4,000 restaurants uh, in total, of which I think Two-thirds are run by LSA itself, and then about one-third are sub-franchised out to local operators. Um, yeah, so Starbucks, obviously there's not a lot of commodity pressure because they don't really, I mean, the cost, the amount of coffee that goes into a, a $4 latte is very little. Uh, I think they spend more on sugar than on coffee, to be honest. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I wouldn't be too worried about cost inflation at Starbucks. Uh, Domino's, though, obviously they go through a lot of, uh, wheat and milk products for the cheese and tomatoes and whatnot. So 
yeah, Domino's could get uh, hit. Um, I don't know in the U.S. if Domino's, I don't know how delivery is done in the U.S., but here uh, Domino's still does delivery itself uh, largely instead of through apps. So I don't know. They may have to pay more for gas and all for their drivers as well. Uh, yeah, I assume there's probably inflation issues at Burger King as well. I think the price of French fries has gone through the roof, so that could hurt. Um, yeah, I'll say I believe, what did I see, 18% gross margin, I think, before the pandemic. So if I don't know, if you get hit for three or four points from inflation, that would hurt a lot more than if you're, I don't know, I'll call it Kraft Heinz that has a 40% gross margin. Because like if you lose 4% of your margin and you're at 40%, that's 10% of your earnings. But if you're at 18% gross margin to start out and you lose 4%, that's 25% of your earnings. And so I think the proportional impact is yeah much larger on a restaurant company. Uh, but something like I'll say it's probably better off. Like Starbucks in particular, I don't think you're going to see as big of a margin problem just because the goods they sell are, are much are much better positioned than the food products. But yeah, I would I would rather own a commodity. And uh, sorry, I'd rather own a branded food company like uh, something like McCormick is going to do much better. Because the actual amount that they spend on the spice compared to what they sell it to you for is, it's a much better ratio. Something like I don't know a three dollar jar of black pepper. They're probably only spending thirty cents on the actual black pepper in the jar. So that's gonna if they if the price of that goes up fifty percent, they're still only losing a small portion of their overall margin. Whereas when you're a five dollar Domino's promotion. Uh, and the cost of your wheat and meat and uh, tomatoes and all goes from $2 to $3. That kind of ruins your business model. Got it. That's that's also helpful. Um, one other random thing, since no one's uh, hopped on uh, behind me yet. There was a uh, an IT company that I believe had a lot of Ukrainian and uh, Russian... Uh, remote workers uh, that was mentioned, I think, in the beginning of the uh, of the war. Is that something that you know? Presumably, that that's something that with you know with remote workers, they you know they have the ability to you know, if they have the ability to you know to escape where they are. And I know in in Russia, IT workers are being exempted from from being conscripted. Is that something that you know, potentially looks interesting here, or, or is that just a, something that's in a too tough bucket? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, thanks for bringing it up. I believe the one that I mentioned is called EPAM Systems, E-P-A-M, both the company name and the ticker. Uh, the founder is from, uh, my memory escapes me, I think from Belarus. Anyway, somewhere in Eastern Europe, and so he's hired mostly contractors from Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. Uh, the company's headquarters is in New York. Uh, however, yeah, most of its IT staff is in Eastern Europe. Uh, the company has fallen, it was already down by a third before the invasion started, and then it dropped by 50% after the invasion actually began. So to put numbers on that, it was at 700 in December, and now it's at 200. It was at 400 when Putin declared war. Um, yeah, so obviously the stock's gotten bombed out. Um, the... Sorry, that's uh, in bad taste. The stock has, has fallen sharply. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Um, uh, it's trading, supposedly, I mean, like if, if earnings were intact, it's trading at 14 times next year's earnings for its 
Historically, it's been something that's traded closer to 35 or 40 times earnings. So that looks compelling on first glance. Uh, the company did withdraw guidance uh, for the whole year, uh, saying that they just uh, they remains to be seen what they're going to do in terms of if they're going to try to move their workers out of out of Eastern Europe or wait for the conflict to die down or try to if they'll have to hire uh, contract staff in other countries. Um, yeah, I assume earnings are going to just uh, they probably won't make money this year. Um, I don't. I feel like. I don't know. We'll probably miss if we wait until after there's a ceasefire, like there's some sort of peace. We'll probably miss the first ten or twenty percent of the rally. I assume the stock will be up dramatically the day that they announce things are over. But like I said, it's gone from seven hundred to two hundred, and you can argue a lot of that was just from tech selling off. But four hundred to two hundred since the invasion started. So if we see a ceasefire and the stock goes from 200 to 250, I'd say there's probably still another 100 points or 150 points of upside back. Um, so I'm I'm watching it. Uh, it's probably a buy now. It's just, I don't know. I've never owned any of these IT outsourcers before, so this would be my first time buying one of them. Uh, it makes me a little nervous that, that this would be my learning curve, would be buying now, because I don't know. I just haven't been through one of these scenarios before where the workforce has been disrupted like this. I, I don't know how much it's going to blow up their long-term contracts. Like, if you're a Fortune 500 company that's relied on EPAM for the last 10 years, do you stick with them when they say we don't have any contractors for the next three months, or are they going to defect to somewhere else? I don't know. It's complicated, but it's down so far. It's down by more than two-thirds off the 52-week high. I think it's interesting if you if you want a, a high-reward sort of roll of the dice on things getting better in Ukraine quickly. I, I don't know. I think you can probably go for it today. Uh, I'll probably wait until we see uh, some sign of peace in the Ukraine. But, yeah, I keep yeah. meaning to take a look at leaps uh, and then get distracted. But if I if I see anything interesting, I'll, I'll report back. All right. Yeah. And I think there's one more. Let's see. Uh, let me see if the... Uh, bu- 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 the... Sorry, there's one more, uh, but I don't remember the ticker. Is it Grid? G... No, I don't know. There's one more that's listed that's a lot smaller and cheaper than EPAM uh, that I was going to give the ticker as well, but it's not coming to me. It's something that starts with G, but I don't have it right now. Let's see, does anyone else want to hop on the line? All right, Gary. Good to hear from you, Gary. Hope you're doing well. Uh, yes, I am, and I uh, hope you are too, and I hope you had a good visit with your mom. Thank you. Yeah, it was as uh, good as could be, given the circumstances. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sure you were distracted at times. Yep. But anyway, what's new with you? Uh, well, my question for you is just what the spike in commodities from the new war in Ukraine has done to inflation and expectations for what the Fed is going to do this year. Um, I was kind of surprised to see the CME expectations of a Fed 50 basis point rate hike go to zero. Um before the February CPI number comes out, 
So I'm just curious what your feelings are on inflation and what the Fed is, uh, if they're handcuffed or um, if, if you think this made their job easier uh, over the next six months. Yeah, it's a good question. I've been thinking about this a, a lot as well, because uh, obviously I have the long bond positions, which is over the next year to two years, which is uh, a bet on lower interest rates, kind of that the Fed will hike less than the seven or eight times the market was projecting. And yeah, you're right. It would, at first glance, it would seem that this is going to cause more inflation. Obviously, fuel, which is a major component of CPI, is just through the roof. I think gas prices are heading to the highest they've been in U.S. history. Food prices are going to be way up. Uh, obviously, other stuff has been inflating as well, but now food and oil are just two things that everyone has to buy. So it's going to be uh, inflation is going to be the biggest issue politically heading into the election. And yeah, the Fed is going to have to do something uh, on that front. However, um, at the same time, the the fact that these things are going up so much is going to cause a sharp deceleration in the rest of the economy because it's, whatever people are spending at the gas station, they're not spending at the mall or they're not spending on vacations. Uh, the boom that we saw in spending in 2021, the, like all consumer goods spending went up 15%, which is just like the highest <laughs> ever. Uh, we're not going to see anything like that in 2022. And so as spending goes into essential things, as people buy more groceries, they'll be buying less of everything else. And that should clear up a lot of the the shortages we've had and like shortages of appliances, shortages of new cars, that sort of stuff should come back into line. And so that will help inflation on a lot of the, the more expensive goods. And then, yeah, I think the Fed is still going to have to hike, but they'll probably try to hike in a more measured fashion instead of a, a, a shock and off 50 basis point hike up front. And then as they hike, I think the economy is going to decelerate really quickly. I mean, in between people having to pay so much for your basic essentials, your food and your energy, and then the credit getting more expensive, I think you're going to see a major squeeze on the economy. Uh, realistically, we might be talking about a recession in 2023. So we might get four or five, call it four or five, rate hikes uh, pretty quickly in this year, but then I'd expect that the economy is going to run out of steam really quickly after that. And so I think that might be why you're seeing kind of uh, the rates market do what they do, because people are seeing the Fed is going to have to hike enough to get inflation under control. Realistically, we might get 10% headline inflation numbers before this peaks. And so obviously the Fed will have to do something, but then in the act of trying to bring inflation under control, they're going to slow the economy down so much that it will that it will drop demand for goods over the longer term. So I think that's what people are seeing. You're starting to see the yield curve head towards being inverted, which is kind of the recession signal that says that the Fed is going to tighten far enough that it's going to cause economic problems. So I think that's what you're seeing. Okay. Yeah, I've been watching the uh, the yield curve and, and also uh, the XLF and the financials mm -hmm. and yeah, the banks are getting whacked. <sighs> yeah, they bounced today, but uh, their their chart looks pretty ugly. Um, and uh, I I'm not jumping in right now. I I know you like uh, uh, MVBF, and it's interesting that they've been holding pretty steady. Uh, the last couple of weeks uh, where they get their deposits uh, as 
non-interest bearing. Um, so higher rates would actually help it. Um, That's correct. So. Yeah, and I think in general, you know, I prefer the smaller banks to the bigger banks. And part of that is simply that you don't have any exposure overseas. Uh, like we saw Citigroup has $6 billion of exposure to Russia, for example, and they admitted to $100 million of losses on that. Uh, but I'm uh, can't be skeptical that if they had $6 billion of exposure that they only lost $100 million of it when the stock market went down like 90% and no one can trade the ruble. And uh, So anyway, I wouldn't be surprised if they lost more money there. The European banks lost a lot of money in Russia. Uh, so like, just the, when you're dealing with your your national banks, your JP Morgans and Bank of Americas and all, uh, they always seem to get caught up uh, in these uh, problems whenever there's problems overseas. Uh, whereas like your, your little banks, something like an MVBF obviously has no operations outside the U.S. And so uh, that provides more security just in terms of your exposed to interest rates in the domestic housing market generally. But you... You don't have to worry about any sort of international shenanigans, which I think people have been reminded of over the past couple of weeks. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyone else? All right. Well, let's call it a night. Oh, oh hey. You got in just in time. How do I pronounce your name? Jopa? Joppa? Good evening. Yeah. Jopa, how are you, and Good evening. Jopa, I'm doing well. Okay, so can I just ask you a question? I'm, I kind of missed out on most of it, so I don't mean to be asking a question that you already answered, but uh, no do you think, so you. you think the commodities craze is being caused by, um, like, the situation with Russia and Ukraine? Uh, yeah, it certainly helped to a degree, uh, just in terms of uh, Russia and Ukraine are two of the world's five largest corn and uh, corn and wheat producers. Russia is the largest oil exporter. Russia is a large natural gas exporter. Uh, they do a lot of mining. And so having Russia sanctioned and cut off from the world markets is causing a shortage of a lot of commodities. Damn, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Russia, people haven't really... Oh. And he disappeared. But yeah, I think people hadn't really thought about how much impact Russia still had on the world economy because it's kind of been a declining power, declining population and all. Uh, but yeah, it's still a, turns out it's fairly significant to world affairs. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so I want to thank you all for joining tonight um, and have a great evening, have a great week, and we'll be back next week with another episode. So have a good one.